time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back, great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. So far, this is Rintoul and Sermon. I am Karen Sermon, and he is Jamie Dodd in for a continuing vacationing Scott Rintoul. Jamie, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic. I got uh, the tennis on the big screen here in the home studio, so I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to the show today. Me too. We got Felix Oje Aliasim on court, as is uh, the Lower Mainland's Rebecca Marino. She's not having a good go as she did in the first no. round. We'll get it. We'll get a little bit into that as this show goes on. Jamie, it's been a uh, well. I was gonna say not much has happened over the last twenty four hours, and then messy signs, and then yes, yes. Then we get some quotes coming out of Sweden. Uh, we're going to get into that as the show goes on. But quickly, let's let's just uh, set up the show for our listener because we're going to kind of go around the sporting landscape this morning. Uh, it's summer. There is a lot of stuff going on. And actually, we do have some hockey news to talk about as well. So coming up at the bottom of this first hour, we will head to Toronto to speak with Ben Lewis. He is with the Fan 590 in Toronto, co-host of the Match Point Canada podcast. And you can tell by the title, Match Point, he's talking about tennis. So we're going to talk about the National Bank Open about the Canadians that are in action there. I have one question for you. Does Bianca Andreescu know how to win a match in two sets? <laughs> Does she know how to do it without a little bit of drama? Right? Maybe maybe she was just looking for a ch- the chance to get the crowd pumped up a little bit. Because when she <laughs> turned the tide in the third yeah. set, it was pretty exciting. So maybe she just wanted a little bit of that excitement for the crowd. I don't know. She did. Uh, she moved on to the second round, but with not uh, not without a little bit of drama. So we're going to talk about that coming up in the second hour. We're going to head to our nation's capital, speak with the Athletics' Ian Mendez. Not a ton of news t- really out of the NHL in the last 24 hours, except recently. Uh, we're going to get into some quotes from Elias Pettersson that he made to a Swedish NHL reporter who has translated them in English. And some interesting quotes, but I don't know if they're necessarily surprising quotes, Jamie. Uh, we'll let the listener know what we kind of think about that it's it's posturing that's what it is yes it's posturing from Ellis Patterson his agent so we'll get into that and in the third hour of the show we're going to speak to our first Olympic medals that you and I have spoken to since returning from Tokyo 2020 Jamie Richmond's Evan Dumphy will join us I'm looking forward to this one because well He's an Olympic medalist, and we haven't spoken to one, and it's very rare that you do get to speak to one, so I'm excited to listen to what he had to say about his experience in Tokyo, revenge from Rio, and that fourth-place finish, but just also kind of get from the athletes firsthand what it was like. We know about the heat, we know about the protocols, and we know about the restrictions that Beijing says is going to be even more strict than Tokyo, so I kind of want to hear how strict it actually was from someone who was on the ground. Yeah, I mean, there's so many elements to the Olympic Games we just watched, right? And, you know, normally when you talk to somebody who just won bronze, there's still lots to talk about, right? How did the performance go, reaction, all that. But you're right. In this instance, there's so many other things that they had to deal with there in the lead up to Tokyo as well. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with, uh, with Evan Dunphy. 
And he's always a good time. He'll make us laugh, that's for sure. Uh, coming up in the fourth hour for our Vancouver listeners, we're going to talk a little NFL as well. Benjamin Albright with KOA Colorado. He's actually in the Twin Cities for preseason action this Saturday between the Broncos and Vikings. We'll talk a little Broncos with him. We'll talk a little Vikings with him. But, Jamie, there are some stories around the NFL um, that have come up over the last couple of days that we want to talk to him about. But let's get into... The news of the day. Just quickly before we get to Elias Pettersson and his comments, Lionel Messi finally put pen to paper, and to my dismay, it did not happen at the top of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> it happened at PSG's clubhouse. Uh, not surprising. There were some fans there chanting his name. If anyone cares, he's going to wear number 30. Yeah. Which apparently I found out this morning while listening to 650's morning show that he actually had to get special permission for because that's reserved for a netminder, if I'm not mistaken. There so, you go. You learn something every day. Right. Who, who is going to turn Messi down? When, when Messi right? <laughs> asks for a number, you just give him the number. Come on. This is the one thing that I found interesting. So for those listeners that don't, you know, wonder, like, why do you guys keep talking about Messi and keep talking about soccer? This is why. So when the news came down that he was signing, PSG gained 4.5 million Instagram followers in a 24-hour period. Now, to put that into context... That's more followers than any American football franchise has in total. The Patriots have the most followers in the NFL with 4.36. So basically, PSG is now an Instagram influencer. Now that Messi is there. Well, it's that that's just it, right? I mean, we've all heard the quote of what they're paying him or reportedly what they're going to be paying him. And it's it's such an easy decision for them because he instantly does so many other things for your business and helps you make so much money. Not just because mm-hmm. he's going to help the team on the pitch, right? But because... He is one of a handful of truly global sports superstars that has the ability to move people, move people's attention that way. And they're really getting him at like a discount, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> about 30, 30 to 35 million euros. That equates to about 35 to 41 million dollars uh, US. So Canadian, a little less than that, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, for us, it's a significant amount of change. But what Messi, he doesn't need the money, <laughs> obviously. No. He's going somewhere to join a super team, a team that obviously wanted him. I'm sure maybe he had offers from other teams. But this team can financially put him on the payroll. And he did say, you know, like, my goal is to win a sixth, seventh uh, Champions League title. He's won five of them already with Barcelona. And his goal is to win some more. So it's going to be weird to see it when it first happens. Uh, I guess the hope is if you're PSG fans that everyone could stay healthy because we know Neymar technically can't but if you could have Neymar Mbappe and Messi on the pitch at the same time like I'm looking at that and thinking okay they're going to score seven times in a game <laughs> they're going to be the Edmonton Oilers of the of the uh French league yeah it's not bad that's a that's a pretty decent amount of uh, of attacking talent that you can get on the on the pitch at one time there in PSG okay this is the news though that is coming down just moments ago before we got on the show and we want to get into this because Swedish NHL reporter, is it Uf, Ufe Bodin? Ufe, yes. Ufe, Ufe Bodin. Bodin. I want to pronounce that correctly. Ufe Bodin did an interview in Swedish with Elias Pettersson, who we know, Jamie, we're waiting to put pen to paper on a contract negoti- or on a contract going forward. We don't know what that contract is going to be, but we did find out not really close with the Vancouver Canucks right now. So Ufe did translate this into English. So this is not some sort of like... Remember with Goran Dragic, like this is not some snippet yes. of click, clickbait of just one thing taken out of contest. These are the exact quotes that he said. I'll just read them quickly. On how negotiations are going, my agents are, my agents do all the talking with the Canucks, 
and then they inform me about what's going on. Right now, we're not in an agreement, but I'm not worried that we're not going to solve it eventually. Both parties need to be happy in order to find a solution, but I'm not worried about that. He was then asked about what kind of deal he'd prefer. And this is a little bit more where the okay comes in. I want to stay here in Vancouver now, but I also want to play for a team that's winning and has a chance to go far in the playoffs every year. I feel like we've got a chance to do that next year. If we have a chance when my next deal expires, I don't know. I just want to play where there's a chance of winning. Jamie, your initial thoughts of hearing those comments. So my initial thoughts were one, people in Vancouver are going to overreact to this. So I guess mm-hmm. then my my second thought is don't overreact to these comments, right? Do not start to panic that Elias Pettersson is trying to force his way out of Vancouver all of a sudden. Because, look, anytime a young franchise cornerstone like Elias Pettersson, I, I understand it. Anytime he even broaches the idea of potentially playing somewhere yes. else, which he kind of is in this, I, I know people are going to get a little anxious about it, right? They're not going to like that. I get it. But you look past that and see what he's actually saying here. I mean, first of all, I think something that's gone unnoticed is he kind of pays the team a compliment, right? He says, mm-hmm. I want to go far in the playoffs every year, and I think we've got a chance to do that this this upcoming season. So that's a good thing right there for how he views the team. But second of all, I mean, we know about Elias Pettersson, that he's an extremely competitive guy, right? That he takes a lot of pride in his performance, and that winning is extremely important to him. We already knew that. So, yeah, of course he wants to go play for a winning team. And if you are in Canucks management, this should not be breaking news to you. Like, this should not cause you to sit up and go, oh my oh my goodness, we have to try to put a winning team around this guy. That's already the goal. And there can be plenty of debate about how they've gone about doing it, but these quotes shouldn't change anything about how you see the relationship between the Vancouver Canucks and Elias Pettersson. Of course, of course. Like, let's say Pettersson signs a four-year deal here, right? Mm-hmm. And the Canucks miss the playoffs all four years. Of course he's going to be dissatisfied with that. Of course he is. So, on the one hand, I understand it. it. Whenever there's even, you know, a whisper that a player might be unhappy, a player like this, or he might want to go somewhere else, fans are always going to react to it. But at the same time, this is a competitive guy just saying, yeah, I really like Vancouver and I also want to win. That shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. So, first of all, after last season, no one should be surprised that Elias Pettersson is not happy, right? He missed half the season with a wrist injury uh, that was not expected to be long-term, then ended up being long-term, then kept him out for the remainder of the season. Then they all go through COVID. Then they all go through the losing, and he wasn't able to be part of the team that was able to bring them out of it. So, I understand the frustration, and he's not the only one that's frustrated. One player actually forced himself out of the market because he was frustrated with what happened last year. And that's Nate Schmidt. He's no longer here. We heard other rumblings about other players. And yes, you know, Jim Benning and JT Miller's camp came out and said, yes, no, everything that you're saying about him wanting out is not true. But there is a reason it did get out there because, yeah, these players were frustrated last year. So I understand Elias Pettersson would be frustrated. I also understand the fact that he's also negotiating a new contract and his agent is doing that for him but Elias Pettersson has to be happy with it he understands this is not necessarily his time to cash in too right Right. like that's the next deal because of the salary cap that's happening right now the flat cap expectation is he's going to sign a bridge deal and then we'll go from there because when the cap does increase in what is expected 2025-26 he can cash in on a longer term What strikes me is you said something like, this is not something that management doesn't know. And I hope, I hope not. (laughs) Fair enough. 
Fair enough, Jamie. Uh, but, like, they're going to do exit interviews. What do you think all these players said? Like, this was a crappy year after making the playoffs in the bubble and pushing Vegas to Game 7 of potentially going to the Western Conference Final. The expectation the team was going to take a step forward last season, and they took a step back. And you can argue it's because players they lost, but still, performance on the ice, you have to deal with what you have, and it just didn't happen for them. So, Elias Pettersson may have conveyed this to Jim Benny, like, look... Like, yeah, this last year sucks. I want to be in the playoffs. I want to win. And also, he doesn't need to convey this to Jim Benny. You should understand, in the NHL, your goal is to win. And a competitive guy that has, you know, the talent that he has, he's won the Calder Trophy, you know, expectations is for him. Like, yeah, I want to win the Stanley Cup. And if this team that drafted me doesn't put a team around me long-term that can sustain that possibility of going to a Stanley Cup final, then maybe I'll change my, deci- change my decision and want to go else- elsewhere. Like, that's not shocking. Oh, it's not shocking at all. And I think it's a good reminder. And, you know, Karen, you know this as an Oilers fan. Like, the <laughs> incessant chatter about are the, are the Oilers doing enough to keep Connor McDavid happy? Is there a chance yeah. that he could want to go elsewhere, some down, somewhere down the line when his contract expires? Could he ever demand a trade if they're not doing well enough, right? You're used to that. In Toronto, Austin Matthews signed the five-year deal, which is going to mm-hmm. make it a lot easier for him to potentially go elsewhere. They're used to that conversation. This is just kind of the new reality. I mean, the days of superstar players just getting drafted, signing long-term, and then never making any demands on their team, I think those are done. Players realize they have a lot of leverage right now, and it's not just about maximizing their income. That's part of it. And surely that's part of what Elias Pettersson is trying to get done in these negotiations too. But it's also Mm -hmm. about finding the best situation. And that could be winning, that could be location, whatever it is. I think players are a lot smarter about how they approach the shape of their careers now. They know they have options. They know they have leverage. Elias Pettersson, it's no surprise that he's a part of that generation. He's a part of the cohort that understands all of that. So again, it should none of this should be a surprise. to fans it definitely shouldn't be a surprise to Canucks management it's just this is the reality of having a superstar player now you have to do certain things to keep them happy and usually step one is icing a consistently competitive team yeah you mentioned Connor McDavid like gone are the days of Sidney Crosby and Alexander Ovechkin just gone are the days it's and also too like I mean not Ovi but Sid it's a little different story because he did have he's had sustained success since he's been there they have made the postseason. They made the bubble. Made the postseason every year he's played. So it's the same success, right? Once you get into the playoffs, you have a chance of winning a Stanley Cup. Sidney Crosby, a little bit of an outlier. But you look at, say, a Jack Eichel in that situation. Even if Jack Eichel wasn't hurt this year, Jamie, take, take off the neck injury and the controversy about should he or shouldn't he have surgery. Don't you think he'd probably maybe still be in the same situation with this team? Because... You know, he was a number two overall pick. They try and put players around him. It hasn't worked, and he wants to win. So I would still expect Jack Geico would probably say, yeah, I want out of here. Yes. It just happens. If you don't put a winning product on the ice and you lose year after year, players, superstars get frustrated, and they want to move on, and it's within their right to move on. Yeah, they have, again, it's part of this is that they have realized they have the leverage to, to, to affect their situation, right? They don't, they don't just have to sign a long-term deal and then deal with whatever management throws at them. They, they can do certain things to try to improve them, their situation. Uh, these, these comments coming in 650, 650 to the text message inbox. Yeah. Unsigned Pedersen's comments suggest that he'll probably sign a bridge contract and see how the Canucks make out going forward. Yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation. I mean, I think 
because of the dollar figures we're talking about, a bridge deal was always going to be the most likely anyways, right? But Mm -hmm. an added bonus for Elias Pettersson is probably that it gives him that extra flexibility if he doesn't like the direction of the team over the next three or four years. Yeah, and this one comes in from Eric in Calgary. Pedersen's comments are comparable to Johnny Goudreau's, quote, I would love to play in Philly comments. It's not the end of the world, folks. You know, like, it's the, yeah, you'd like to play for your home team one day. It's the Steven Stamkos, is he going to go play in Toronto or back in Tampa Bay? Yeah, I'd love to play for Toronto. But I'm still going to play in Tampa Bay. Like, it's not, these comments don't need to be taken out of context, other than the fact that Elias Pettersson is a competitor and wants to win. I do, that unsigned texter that said the bridge contract, and you had mentioned that was the expectation anyways, I just hope (laughs) these comments don't come with the first day he signs his contract, he's got his media availability, and the comments are, well, you said they got to put a winner, so what happens when this deal runs out and... Are you looking to go elsewhere? Like, what has to happen in these next three years of your contract? Like, you know that's coming, right? Or at least the the fan base, a certain portion of the fan base could be asking that question. Well, I, he don't... We'll, like, we'll hear fair, something like that. We'll hear something like that at his kind of training camp availability. I, I would expect so, for sure. Yeah, it's just the way it is. And and hey, look, like, Canucks fans know this. This The, the moves that Jim Benny made this offseason are about, yes, appeasing their young stars, showing, like, moving out those dead weight contracts, getting in players that can play in the now. And you could talk about Oliver ekman Larson and his debt last four years downward, but he's obviously coming in to prove himself in a new organization. And you've got Connor Garland in the deal as well. You've upgraded your team from last year, at least what I think, on paper. But it's not just about Patterson. And it's not just about Hughes. Yeah, you got to appease them and show them that you're willing to win. But look, Brock Besser is an RFA next summer. Yep. Bo Horvat and JT Miller have the ability to sign contract extensions after this season, next summer. So this is not just necessarily about Elias Pettersson. Yes, the comments come from it, but this team knows, the organization management knows that it needs to do something this upcoming season to show this team is willing to make moves and willing to put a better product on the ice and try and push for the playoffs because there's a lot of big key guys on this team that, other than Elias Pettersson, that could be part of this future, that may not be part of this future if there is no winning product on the ice. And I think that's just a huge part of managing an NHL team or any pro sports team in this day and age, right? Is that the people management side of things is keeping people happy, making them feel like they're they're being listened to, right? And that doesn't mean you cater to the players in every situation or you do whatever they demand, but I think they want to feel involved and they want to feel like the team is in is going in the right direction. Again, I think that's a shift that we've seen in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, whatever you want to say, is that Players are much more aware of kind of what's going on behind the scenes, and they and they mm-hmm. are, are more willing to flex their muscles and voice their displeasure if they don't like how it's going. And I think another thing that plays into this is, you know, guys around the league all talk, right? <laughs> they all talk all the yeah. time. So so if if they know, if you know, they might have players telling them, hey, I, I hear things aren't going great there. We've got a great situation here. Like, those conversations are are always happening. I mean, we talked about this with Michael Granger on the show yesterday, right? Players yeah. talk a lot about their different situations and what's go and what's going on. And again, this is just this is par for the course now, right? You have star players, you have to work hard to keep them happy. It's funny, we talked to Mike McKenna I guess a couple of months ago. And remember we asked him about the uh something to the effect of you've played for a lot of organizations. Are there ones out there that are just like poorly run and you didn't want to play for and he said yeah there are and we're like can you name them he's like no I'm not going to name them for you but it's pretty widely known you know like Tampa Bay for instance very well run organization I'm guessing players you know you look at Patrick Maroon as an example but 
he's also a fourth line player, but you look at players are probably willing to take some sort of pay cut to go play for a team that has a great culture, great system, great head coach. Winning helps, obviously, but it's kind of like the Tampa Bay way when you go to Tampa Bay and you understand that you want to be part of that because you do have a chance of winning the Stanley Cup year after year. I would probably argue the Boston way. Right. And people don't like hearing that. But look at all the stars that signed in Boston. They're all on team friendly deals because they want to stay with that organization. They want a chance to win. And so players understand where's a good place to go and where's not a good place to play. Vancouver was that back in the 2000s or in the, like in the 2011 season, like in that era, Kevin Bieksen says like, yeah, players wanted to come play for that organization because of the culture with the team. They were willing to take a little bit of a, you know, team friendly deal to have a chance to win a Stanley cup. It all comes down to, I think winning, but it also comes down to how you're treated as a player and the players know which organizations do that the best. They do, but you're right. I think you make a good point. I and mean, we've, we've seen how quickly the, the, the perception of the culture in Vancouver has flipped, right, from, as you say, the, the 2011 era, Sedin Twin and Luongo heyday, to how it's maybe viewed now. And I think the lesson there is, first and foremost, winning cures a lot, right? It if does. you are a consistently winning organization – Players are going to want to go there. You know, whatever you're doing behind the scenes, yeah, you have to meet a baseline of how you treat people, obviously, but winning cures an awful lot. And I think, again, that's kind of the biggest takeaway from these Elias Pettersson comments is if you can find a way to win games consistently, pretty much everything else will sort itself out, right? And, and that's that's the challenge in front of Canucks management now. Lots more uh, feedback coming in, 650 650. This one is from Mike. I think that Pedersen still has a lot to prove. He doesn't deserve a long-term lucrative contract yet. That's from Mike. I mean, I would sign Pedersen long-term in a heartbeat if they had the cap space. I just don't think they really have the cap space to do it. So you're in luck, Mike, because you are probably going to see a shorter-term <laughs> deal for Elias Pedersen. Yeah, and it's, hey, he's got to stay healthy this upcoming season. I mean, that's one big thing too. But I, I think that... If it was a normal world, and I say that without the COVID constraints of um, a flat cap, yeah, the Canucks would be pushing for a long-term deal. Like, I don't think this is a situation that we've heard with Kirill Kaprizov in um, Minnesota, right? Jamie, like, reports that he's got some sort of deal to go to the KHL, like, and he's just trying to get a short-term deal because, you know, it could be a Panarin situation where he doesn't want to be in small-town Minneapolis and play for that team. He wants to go, say, to the big lights of the Big Apple or you know, South Beach, wherever the case may be. He just doesn't want to commit there long-term. That's not what this situation is. Like, Elias Pettersson, I fully believe, is like, yeah, I'm invested in this team. I want this team to win. But this team needs to win and show me what to win. And then we'll just assess when my next contract is up in three, four, whatever the bridge deal is with this organization. So we're going to discuss this as the show goes on. Jamie, I did not think we'd be talking this much hockey <laughs> this morning. There you go. You and I had a full show plan that we're still going to discuss as we go on. We're going to talk about other sports, uh, specifically tennis coming up right now. But, of course, we will talk some hockey because this news is coming down. National Bank Open is underway in Montreal. That's where the ladies are. And... And in Toronto, that's where the men are. Uh, Felix Oje-Aliassime lost the opening set to Dusan Leovic from Serbia 7-5. Looks like he was broken pretty late uh, to lose that set. He is down a break as well, 3-1 in the second. We'll keep you updated on that. Do we have a Rebecca Marino update? She was not doing so well in her match. She lost the first set 6-1, and it looks like that match is... uh, She's up a break. She's up a break, it looks like, on on serve, sorry, in the second set. So we'll keep you up to date, and we're going to talk 
to, excuse me, uh, Ben Lewis coming up around the break. We're going to take a quick break. It's Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. This is Rintoul and Sermon, Karen Sermon, Jamie Dodd in for a vacationing Scott Rintoul. Jamie watching a little tennis action on the telly today. Did you, uh... Did you catch a little bit of Bianca Andreescu's first round match, or her at least first match at the uh, National Bank yesterday? Yeah, I caught the bulk so- of it. It was great to see her back on the court in front of the home home fans. Not full uh, attendance at the venue, but enough there to make it loud and make it really exciting. It was great. Yeah, it was great. She was facing uh, Britt Harriet Dart, who's ranked 152nd in the world. Uh, you think about that, who Bianca's the number two seed in this tournament, ranked eighth in the WTA right now. Um, worldwide, it seemed like a match she should have probably won in two sets, and the first set kind of went the the way you thought it would, uh, with her getting a break and then kind of yep. rolling over Harriet. But she found uh, her groove. Harriet in the second set got that, uh, won that one, and then you know Bianca once she finally got the break in the third set, it was uh, lights out for the British player. It seems to me though, <laughs> Bianca Andreescu averages in the last two tournaments. So in 2019, when she won this event and combining yesterday's match, she spent over two hours on court for every match at the National Bank Financial. Now, it could just be she likes playing in front of her own fans and wants to give them a show and give them a little bit of uh, anxiety while watching her as well. But it's one thing with Bianca Andreescu. I did say to my boyfriend, we were watching it. I'm like, oh, you know, she won the first set. What do you think the odds are this is going to go three? Because it is one of those things where she uh, she just tends to not get things done and make it easier yeah. on herself. And get she it- likes the drama. She likes the drama. What can you say? I can't complain about that. As a, as a spectator, it's fun. It, I it's, do. Uh, it's enjoyable. Jamie, we like, <laughs> we're cheering for our country. We'd like her to maybe get things done a little bit easier, you know, not have to spend so much time with the court so she can be a little bit more well-rested going forward. No, I don't like this at all. I don't like it. I like the I fact definitely, that... I did- definitely got to yell at the TV a little bit, like in a yeah. positive way when she, when she started putting some shots away and got back on the front foot. So that's always fun, right? You get an excuse to to get some hollering in at at your TV. I wasn't expecting it in that match. So I don't know. I kind of like it. It is. It's one of the events that I would actually love to go to once in my lifetime. I had some friends that went to the one uh, back when I think Andy Murray won it, but it was uh, Dennis Shapovalov's coming out party. When right. he made it to the semifinals and they said it was just incredible. Of course, this is pre-COVID when these stands could be full and packed. And they said it was an incredible event. I'd like to go to either this one, the National Bank. I'd like to go to Indian Wells because that's just down in Palm Springs. Yep. And it's in end of March, I believe, maybe early April. So it's not exactly scorching hot. <laughs> you know, you're not going in August to Palm Springs. Right. Or, or the U.S. Open because I'd love to see some night events at the U.S. Open. Yeah, the U.S. Open would be really cool. I mean, obviously, Wimbledon as well is up there. But you're right. I think I said earlier on the show or earlier in the week, maybe, I've never actually been to a professional tennis event. So just really any event, any high-level tennis is on my bucket list for sure. Yeah, and actually, the U.S. Open makes it pretty affordable for you to go. Like, it costs only, I think it's $25, and you can get a grounds pass. Now, that doesn't get you into... Arthur Ashe Stadium. Right. So you can't watch like the main events. But if you think about it, like think of the incredible matches that you could watch on the outside courts for just $25 in the first week of the tournament. Like it'd be, it's it's really, it's not bad. It's not bad. And shockingly, they make it affordable, which you wouldn't think would be at the U.S. Open. We're joined now by Ben Lewis, Sportsnet 590, the fan and co-host of Matchpoint Canada podcast. Ben, how are you doing today? 
Oh, I'm doing uh, doing well. I'm trying to adjust my sleep schedule because I've had a couple long nights uh, watching matches in Toronto. But uh, yeah, enjoying some great live tennis from the Aviva Center. So it's uh, it's been great. Yeah, I was watching Victoria Azarenka's match last night, and I was like, okay, it's you know it's nine o'clock here. Oh yeah, that's midnight in Montreal. <laughs> so I can only imagine. <laughs> How late you had to stay up to watch that match. Um, Felix Oje Aliassime, before we get into Bianca and what happened yesterday on the ladies' side, Felix Oje Aliassime is on the court right now. He lost the first set 7-5. He's down a break 4-2 in the second. He's the ninth seed in this tournament. How disappointing would it be if he's to go out first round? I, I would be pretty disappointed, I must say, especially because... Um, you know, the first half of his 2021 season wasn't particularly strong, but I, I thought he really picked up steam and momentum from his grass court season. He, he played so well on the grass, um, not only making a final in the lead-up, but then also at Wimbledon, making his first-ever quarterfinal at a major. I, I felt for him was a huge breakthrough. He had that, that signature win over Roger Federer. I, I know Roger Federer is it's 40 years old now, but it's always a big deal to be one of the big three. So that felt like a breakout moment for him. And, and then it seems like since then, he has stagnated a little bit. Uh, Tokyo for him was disappointing. He lost his first match there. Um, he lost pretty early in Washington. And obviously, I, I, home tournament more officially, I suppose, Montreal when he's playing there. But anytime you're playing um, National Bank opening in Canada, you want to perform well. And uh, this first match to me felt winnable. But yeah, he's, he's behind early against Dusan Leibovic. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Ben, when you look at Felix's game, he obviously, we know he won the junior French. Uh, he's made it to the quarterfinals now at Wimbledon. Having a tough hard court season, though, to right now, this year. What, what court, which surface do you think his game translates the best to? Um, he should honestly be an all-court player. It's, it's hard to figure him out in that sense because earlier on in his career, I mean, you mentioned junior French Open champion. Um, 2019, he made those three ATP finals, and that was essentially through the clay court swing kind of early on. So he proved himself on clay. Um, then he stepped up and was making more finals on hard in 2020, and then he had this great grass court swing on 2021. So to me, he's an all-court player. I feel like best surface probably should be the hard court surface. He he likes to dictate play from the back of the baseline, has a pretty explosive forehand and and moves so well um, and is so athletic and hard to pull off the court, even on hard surfaces. So this honestly, North American hard court swing is a stretch of the season where I feel like he should be playing some of his best tennis. So I, I would be disappointed if he goes out early. I don't want to write him off yet. I know it's one break of serve in the second set. And this is a guy who's, who's world number 15. So it's almost unusual to be talking about some disappointing results for him because he has mixed in some great results in between some tough losses. And you mentioned, you know, as you say, great results, but also some tough losses, a bit of an up and down year for him so far in 2021. Is there something specific you'd like to see him really tighten up in his game? Or is it just a matter of finding that consistency from event to event? Yeah, he's always talked about, um, during those losses, being unable to kind of play a quality stretch of points back to back to back, just having that succession of, of quality where he felt like I play one or two good points and then take a step back. And to me, that speaks volumes mentally of an issue where he's, he's not maybe fully confident in, in what he's doing on the court because uh, when you get that repetition, you're kind of in the zone 
And you are going to play points with that level of consistency where you're doing the same things on your ground strokes. You're replicating that same service motion, which is getting you those free, comfortable points. So I, I think it is more so between the ears. He gets a bit inside himself, tries to do too much, gets a little too passive or defensive. Um, because in terms of the tools, the intangibles, everything is there for him to be a star. The other high-profile Canadian on the men's side, Denis Shapovalov, will get going tonight against Gail Monfiel. What do you make of where Shapo's game is right now? I think Shapo is, is in an awesome spot, to be honest. Um, coming off a, a Wimbledon semifinal, and he was speaking so confidently in his pre-tournament press conference. Um, he felt like he, he called himself a big, big threat. He feels like he's playing great tennis in practice. And he just has so many weapons. He's such a shot maker. Um, he's actually playing Francis Tiafo. I'll correct you there. Galmolfis is going to be after him. Excuse so he's me. Starting excuse against me. the American. Yeah, no problem. And um, I think this will be a very fun match because Tiafo, similar to Monfils, actually a great entertainer. Um, and I spoke to him in the pre-tournament press conference as well. And he said, Dennis, um, they play great matches, but there are moments where Dennis can take the racket out of your hands with his shot making. So if he's in that confident zone, basically what we saw from him at Wimbledon, to me, he's someone who could win this tournament, especially because uh, Rafael Nadal pulled out yesterday with a foot injury. And, you know, Novak Djokovic isn't here earlier, isn't here either, pardon me, and uh, neither is Roger Federer. We're speaking with uh, Ben Lewis. Fan 590 in Toronto, also the co-host of the Matchpoint Canada podcast. Ben, on the BBC broadcast during Wimbledon, John McEnroe was talking about Felix Auger-Aliassime and Denis Shapovalov, and he said, like, I'd be absolutely shocked if these two kids didn't win multiple majors. And he said kids because they are still kids. Like, we have to understand how young these Mm -hmm. are. They're in their uh, their early 20s. Do you think this is a, like, they hear this chatter. I'm sure they do. Like, you can't ignore it. But do you think it's a good thing for them to hear the fact that, like, someone who of John McEnroe's ilk sees that talent level in them? Or is it a little bit too much at this age pressure to put on them? Um, as much as I would say, you know, that that is too much pressure. We shouldn't put that on their shoulders. Honestly, these two, I think they've been hearing that sentiment for a long time. I think even for Felix, he's been hearing that. Um, ruffles of that since he was 14, 15 years old. Both of them were such phenoms as juniors um, and and standout juniors that we were getting these projections like while they were young teenagers. I think I think for them they've heard it all. I think they know how to kind of block out the outside noise and recognize yes there are high expectations on their shoulders, but I Dennis Dennis to me especially. He just loves the spotlight. He loves getting on the big stage and performing. You could see it at Wimbledon. I don't think he cares. I think he likes to hear that, honestly. I, I think he has mm-hmm. this confidence. He, he believes he's going to win multiple majors. Felix, I think he has to take a couple more steps mentally, honestly, um, because it's interesting. We go back two years ago, um, what we were hearing, at least on, on this end for me, I, I noticed more chatter of saying Felix is going to be the future world number one more so than Dennis, and I think that's shifted a little bit that that people are leaning more so Dennis. But for me, both of them have such long, um, illustrious careers ahead of them, and I absolutely think they will be competing for majors. 
Let's switch to the uh, women's side in Montreal. Rebecca Marino from Vancouver is currently on the court. She lost the first set handily to Par Paula Badosa 6-1, but she won the second set 7-5, bounced back. They are on serve currently in the third set. Rebecca's ranked 220 in the world, and she beat Madison Keys in the first round, of course, the number 16 seed. For Rebecca at the age of 30, knowing what she's been through, retiring for five years, coming back, showing her father who was battling cancer that she was happy playing tennis again, and unfortunately he has passed away since then. But seeing her play on the court, like, what can you put into context what this means for just her being back out there? Look, honestly, for me, for me, it's inspiring just when she's out there playing. Um, the fact that we're getting amazing results is, is just like a cherry on top. Um, because she's been through so much, as you said. She had a really long layoff the first time, and, and we forget how great a player she was 2010, 2011. She broke inside the top top 40 um, in 2011 and was playing in main draw slams, reached the third, third round of a French Open, um, reached the WTA final, and that was going back a decade. So for her to take a, a five-year hiatus from the sport, um, basically after her best season on tour, um, acknowledging her issues with mental health and, and depression, which I, I think is honestly, unfortunately, pretty widespread in this sport, and we just don't hear about it. Um, and for her to make such a good re return, firstly in 2017 and 2018, where she was competing and, and winning ITS and, and coming back in such, such strong form, but then doing it again um, here in 2021. And, you know, you mentioned her ranking number 220. She's playing at such a higher level than that. Of course, when you go after these long breaks, it's going to hurt your ranking and positioning. Um, but even this year, she, she performed so well at Billie Jean King Cup. She beat a top 100 play there, player there, Nina Stojanovic. And then to beat Madison Keyes, who's one of the hardest-hitting Americans on the tour, a top 25 player, someone who's been to a U.S. Open final. And now she's um, into a third set with Paula Bedosa, who's this breakout Spanish player having an amazing season. It shows to me her level is so much higher than her ranking. To me, she's already playing like a top 100, top 75 player. And uh, she's her story is inspiring, and she's just such an easy person to root for on and off the court. Sticking on the women's side of things, Ben, uh, we saw Bianca Andreescu win her first match of the tournament. What did you make of her performance? Um, I, I liked her resiliency at the end. I will absolutely say that. And um, it, it's funny, Bianca... Bianca seems to have a consistent pattern with even when she's winning matches, she doesn't like to go the easy route. She likes to <laughs> play into these long, lengthy three-setters. It's funny, even you go back to 2019, we had a similar pattern when she won the uh, Rogers Cup, formerly known in 2019 in Toronto. I think all, all of her wins except for one were long three-set matches, and often she was taking the first set comfortably and then has a little hiccup in the second before getting back on track in the third. Happened at the U.S. Open as well. A lot of lengthy three-setters. Um, she kind of joked afterwards that she was uh, sticking around to entertain the crowd a little more and give them more tennis. But uh, for fans of her, I'm sure it's a little stressful. But I thought she was solid, honestly. Um, her first match since Wimbledon in the grass court season was a tough one for her. She missed most of the clay court season, as we know, with the COVID issue. Um, but I think this North American hardcourt swing is the time when she plays her very, very best tennis. 
she feeds off that crowd so, so well. She feeds off their energy incredibly well. I think the Montreal fans already love her. Um, so this was a good win against Harriet Dart, who was actually just beat a Canadian in the previous round in Layla Fernandez. So uh, good first win under her belt as the second seed, and uh, she'll have a potentially very tough matchup uh, coming up if she does have to face Ons Jabur, who's at the 13th seed and just had a great run at Wimbledon. So that would be an interesting one. Well, and you mentioned the connection that uh, Bianca has with the crowd. And it, it seems to me that this tournament is a really great opportunity for her to you know, kind of get her season back on track because she's the defending champion. It's at home. She she can feed off the emotion, uh, as you're saying. Is is this the kind of thing where a good performance at this event can, can be a springboard for her for the rest of the hardcourt season? Oh, absolutely. And even in her pre-tournament press conference, um, I was – almost surprised when you know she was talking about this event and talking about her confidence and practice and she said i really want to win this thing and she was she was not kind of tempering the expectations at all she wasn't sort of saying you know i'm back playing tennis and we're going to see where my level and my form is at hopefully i can get a couple wins she said i want to win this tournament um so you can tell the type of confidence she has in her game when she's healthy uh, which knock on wood, she can stay healthy. Obviously, we know that that's been the biggest problem of her young career is staying on court consistently on a week-to-week basis, getting matches and getting tournaments. But, uh, yeah, I really think she she thrives off that energy from the crowd and absolutely can be a springboard for her. And we know how well she plays at the U.S. Open, too. Um, she missed it in 2020. She'll be dying to get back there as well. Um, this is a good starting point for her. A uh, perfect place to really get back on the court is in front of a home favorite crowd that's that's absolutely going to love her. And um, I think she's already playing well to begin with. Update on the court. Uh, Rebecca Marino, uh, Marino is up a break in the third set. Um, ben, quickly, Bianca Andreescu um, separated from her long-term coach, Sylvain Bruneau, um, and now is working with, on a trial period, Sven Groenwald, who has worked with the likes of Monica Sells back in the day, Mary Pierce, Anna Ivanovic, Caroline Wozniacki, not to mention Maria Sharapova. And I was listening to uh, some comments about why she made the change and went with him is because she wants a coach that knows how to coach multiple major winners and get her into winning not just the U.S. Open, but multiple majors moving forward. What do you think this uh, partnership can do, at least in the short term? Look, it's it's a very high-profile hire. Um, and honestly, Sven Gronfeld, as you mentioned, like the deep, deep resume, it tells me on his end, he doesn't just take on any partnership. I'm, I'm sure there are a ton of players in the WTA tour who would love to have him as a coach. Um, as you mentioned, like the names go on and on. Monica Sellis, Arantxa Sanchez Vicario, um, Maria Sharpovia, as you mentioned, Mary Pierce, Anna Ivanovich, Caroline Wozniacki. These are all former Grand Slam winners. And he also coached some, some elite talent on the ATP side as well. Uh, she talked about his great attention to detail. Right now, it's just a trial coaching run, but I, I think this mm-hmm. is something that, that is going to stick, especially if she has a good result here in Montreal. Um, Sylvain Bruneau was a fantastic coach for her. Uh, we should give him all the credit in the world, especially for that breakout season in 2019. Um, to me, that famous moment came actually at Indian Wells in 2019, where he coached her through a very tough final against Angelique Kerber. That changeover in the third set, he, he fired her up and said, like, how much do you really want this? And kind of pushed mm-hmm. her over the finish line. And now, you know, she's, she's an elite player now. She's a top 10 player. She is a Grand Slam champion. She wants more. And um, I'm not surprised. Um, 
that necessarily that she made a change. It's pretty rare on the tour, honestly, that we get like a a Rafa Nadal type story where he has his uncle coaching him for almost his entire career. That's not, you know, the norm at all. So mm-hmm. this is this is a great hire to me. I think Sven is going to help her a lot, and it, it tells me she's very very serious about her career too. Ben, we've been obviously focusing uh, a lot on the Canadians at this tournament, but is, is there anyone else in the field, either on the men's or the women's side, that you're really keeping a close eye on and, and could maybe set themselves up for a nice run in the hardcourt season here? Yeah, I mean, starting on the men's side, um, the two two names I'll mention, um, I watched one of them play last night with Stefano Tsitsipas. He was in the finals of Toronto in 2018, and that was a big moment for him, breaking out on tour, reaching his first Masters 1000 final. He was still a teenager when he did that, and you know now he has such a great resume, so many great results. He was in the French Open final earlier this year, Australian Open semis. He's won Masters 1000s. He was an ATP finals winner. He's kind of done it all. Um, I think the next step for him, the next step for Daniel Medvedev, who's been to two uh, Grand Slam finals as well, is these guys, firstly, they want to win these Masters 1000s. The opportunities are very much there, especially this open field with no big three. Those are the two top names for me on the men's side. And they want to win majors. I I think the opportunities are going to come up more and more, given that – Nadal, Federer, even Djokovic seem to be wearing down a little bit physically. So those are the two names that are really standing out to me on the men's side. And I will give a shout out to Denis Shapovalov. I I really think he has a great shot at this tournament. And then on the women's side, um, number one seed, Arena Sabalenka. She is such a ferocious competitor. Mm -hmm. Um, She's won eight titles since 2019, which is the most on the WTA. She's great on all surfaces, but particularly the hardcore surface. She is so, so strong and so powerful from the baseline. Uh, She stands out to me um, the most, I would say, on the women's side. And and then there's some other names kind of lurking around that are interesting. Coco Goff, this is her first time playing Montreal, so I I think the crowd's going to love her. Alina Svitolina just won a bronze medal and is coming over to compete here. And then Simona Halep, this is her first tournament back after a long layoff from injury and she's won twice in Montreal. So I'll be keeping an eye on her as well. Uh, ben, I do like uh, watching Zabalenka as well because you know what she's feeling at all points in the match. <laughs> she wears her emotions <laughs> on her sleeve. There's, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. I love her nickname too, actually. They, they nickname her the tiger and she, she really is ferocious. Well. And yeah, she's, she's a powerful presence on court and off actually. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for your time today. Enjoy the rest of both of these tournaments, and uh, we'll probably catch up heading up to the U.S. Open in a few weeks' time. Yeah, thanks, guys. Check in anytime. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was Ben Lewis, uh, Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto and co-host of Matchpoint Canada podcast. Uh, Rebecca Moreno consolidated that break, Jamie. She also has a break point right now to go up 4-1. Should note that Felix Auger-Aliassime yep. did not make a comeback in the second set and unfortunately out in the first round. That's the one thing with Felix, and I think for him, a lot of it, and Ben did point it out, it's, it's all upstairs with him when it comes to confidence on the court. Yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, that's a straight-up very disappointing boss. Like, as the ninth seed in your first match in the second round... You know, playing not again, not exactly at home because he's from Montreal, but still playing in your home country. That's a really, really tough one. And, you know, he is still so young and he still has so much upside. No one should be panicking about this, but it's undeniably a very disappointing loss. 
Yeah, our expectations are that he should be going deep in tournaments. And when yeah. you see the likes of Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, and Rafael Nadal not in a tournament, the hopes are, okay, it's open for the field, right? And so why not a Canadian finally breaking through? I did watch that uh, Sitsipas match last night as well. I was kind of flipping between that one and Bianca's match. And holy cow, he <laughs> it, their second set that he played with Hugo Humbert, I think was longer than any match previously on that court throughout <laughs> the day. Like it was just, it was back and forth and then Sitsipas won it pretty easily in the third set. We're going to turn the corner, maybe talk a little bit more hockey. We're getting a lot of uh, text messages into the 650, 650 inbox and the 960, 960. You want to be part of this show. But Jamie, we also want to talk about the fact that like, okay, yeah, we have some hockey news right now, but hockey doesn't start until, what, five weeks, I think, training camps open. Something so like still, that, yeah. There's still a lot of other stuff that can kind of keep your attention and keep you focused on something else to cheer for leading up to the NHL season. We're going to get a little bit into what else you might be focusing on, enjoying in these next five weeks. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd and for Scott Rintoul. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Hour two of... Rintoul and Sermon, Jamie Dodd in the co-host chair for Scott Rintoul. Jamie, if you were ever given the opportunity to throw to first pitch at a major league ball game, would you do it? 100%. Absolutely 100%. Yeah, I don't think I would because I can't throw. I, so. <laughs> so, okay, look, I know this is a long time ago now, but I, I, yeah. I was a huge baseball kid, like played baseball yeah. until I was 18, all through high school. Again, I know it's a long time ago. I'm not saying I'm going to look like a star out there, but I have faith enough that I can I can go out there and not embarrass myself when I do it. Yeah, like not do a 50 cent. 50, 50 cent no, 50 exactly. Cent. exactly. Uh, first pitch, which if you haven't seen it, go go YouTube, 50 cent first pitch. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Chris Snow, uh, AGM, Assistant General Manager for the Calgary Flames. Because many of our listeners know his story. Back in June of 2019, he was diagnosed with ALS. Uh, it's a disease that uh, he lost his father to, his two uncles, and a cousin. And we all know about ALS, or you could call it Lou Gehrig's disease. There's no cure for ALS as of right now. Um, it's only a matter of basically how long you can live with it and prolong your life. And obviously, he was given a year to live back in 2019. It is now two, past two years, and he is going to throw out the first pitch at Fenway Park tomorrow night along with his children, Cohen, and his who is t- 10. It'll be his 10th birthday tomorrow. And his six-year-old daughter, Willa, they're going to throw out the first pitch at uh, Fenway Park. So good luck to them. It's just an incredible story and an incredible moment for that family. That's really cool. And, I mean, what a what a birthday present for, <laughs> for, right? for the little guy. That's an, that's an incredible 10th birthday present to throw out the first pitch at Fenway. My goodness. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. He's been practicing with his dad. Willa's going to uh, be a little bit closer to throw out her pitch, which I don't doubt her. Um, it's, was it 60 feet, 6 inches is yes. the distance to home plate. So, yeah, good luck to them. Uh, we wish them nothing but the best. Speaking of baseball, uh, that's one of the sports that's in the home stretch. I believe 50 games, give or take, for most teams left in the regular season. Jamie, as we count down to the end of September, the end of the season, there's also a ton of other things going on as we lead up to NHL training camps, which are starting in about five weeks' time. Players will be back on the ice, and we'll have some preseason games, but there's some other stuff to kind of keep us entertained in the meantime. And I know a lot of our audience still wants us to talk about hockey, and we will do that. We've got Ian Mendez coming up in the bottom of the hour to talk a little puck, but 
there are some other sports out there. So we wanted to know from the listeners, you know, what is going to keep your interest until hockey starts? Jamie, we've got, you know, a lot of options. You got baseball, oh, yeah. the pennant, pennant races. You got the CFL just starting the season. NFL preseasons leading up to the start of the season in about a month's time. You got soccer, the Premier League starting this weekend. MLS in full swing. Calvary FC, the Canadian Premier League in Calgary. Uh, Calgary second. They're actually playing Pacific FC tonight, who is in first place, so a big match uh, for them. You've got tennis we've been talking about. You've got golf, the FedEx Cup playoffs uh, start in a week's time. Like, there's lots of things. Even NBA Summer League is on if you want to watch go. that right now. Yeah. It's on television. You can watch the rookies go. I actually spent yesterday on my walk listening to an hour podcast of, um, I think it was the Ringer NBA podcast, breaking down Summer League. And I was like, there, what am I doing? Like, seriously, nothing, what am I doing right now? There is nothing... It's wild because it's on TV and it gets a lot of attention, but there's nothing less meaningful in sports than NBA Summer League. <laughs> right. I, and I watch it. I'll, I'll admit it. I watch it. I My favorite yeah. was this year I saw that some sports books had released championship odds, like future Based on Summer League? No, no, no. Like for, oh. for the Summer League. Oh, okay. Like which team's Summer League entry will win Summer League, which is one of the craziest bets I can possibly imagine. The idea that you could possibly handicap these teams accurately <laughs> is just, just blows my mind. It's like one of those things. It's like, really, can you not find something else to bet on? But I guess there's a lot of people that like to throw their money around, Jamie. If there's something else out there to bet on, that's something to do. But yeah, I, I kind of thought back to myself. I'm like, really? I just spent an hour listening to this. I guess it got me through my walk and I kind of tuned in and tuned out of it. It was kind of just there as background noise, but hey, they love it south of the border as well. Like if you're an NBA fan south of the border, you are all in. ESPN is all in on the summer league, but there is something else. What else? Is, what's going to keep your interest, Jamie? So, I mean, I'm a huge Jays fan. And as long as they can stay in this race, stay legitimately in the race for at least that second wild card spot, I'm going to be all in watching the Blue Jays. I mean, last night, even they had the doubleheader. In L.A., I was kind of flipping back and forth during game one between the Jays and the tennis. Uh, Once Vladdy made that error on that pop-up to first and kind of blew things for the Jays, I switched over to to tennis uh, permanently until the second game, which fortunately they won. But, yeah, for now, I mean, I've always been a huge baseball fan. I've always been a huge Jays fan. So with the Jays playing really well right now in the race, that is number one for me easily uh, ahead of all these other sports until hockey is back. 650, 650, 960, What's going to keep your attention until hockey starts? Uh, this one came in unsigned. Five weeks till NHL training camp start. Until then, I'll be watching my San Francisco Giants kick ass. Yes, that's one of the divisions that has a bit of a race. The Giants are four games up on the Dodgers right now, Jamie. It's kind of a little disappointing when you look at pennant races. You've got the NL East, Atlanta's one back of Philadelphia. The Mets are two back, so that one's obviously a race. You've got Houston, who's two games up on Oakland, but that's basically it in that division. The White Sox are running away with the AL Central. Tampa not running away with it, but I think the expectation is they look very solid, very comfortable in first place. Yeah, exactly. So the races right now are basically two, maybe three divisions. And then the American league all or the American league wildcard, which the Jays happen to be in and you're a fan of them and I'm a fan of them. So coming down the stretch, it's obviously going to be fun to watch for me. (laughs) I'm probably going to go tennis or golf, honestly, because you know how much I love my tennis. And with the U S open coming up in a couple of weeks, like first off, I want to see what the Canadians can do at this tournament. It's great. The tournament's back on. It's great. There's fans there after not having it last season. Uh, I just want to see what Dennis and Bianca can do. And obviously Rebecca Moreno, because she's still alive in this tournament. And I do want to see like, can Djokovic 
Can he win the Joker Slam? He's won all three majors leading up to this point. He's played some poor tennis. We saw his uh, outbursts at the Olympics, Jamie, which were not yep. uh, pretty kosher from him and didn't take too kindly on Twitter. At least the Twitter world didn't. But, you know, there's I do want to see, like, because if he wins this, it'll put him past Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer for Grand Slams. And he'll actually have won all four Grand Slams in the same year. It's a feat that we've, I don't think I've seen since Rod Laver if I'm not mistaken. So it's something that could put him in historic best of greatest ever terms and golf. And I know not a lot of our listeners maybe are really interested in golf right now. I don't know, but we've got one more tournament and then the FedEx cup playoffs start. So you've got the Northern trust, which is the top 125 golfers. You've got then the BMW, which is the top 70 golfers. And then you've got the actual championship, which is, which is the top 30 golfers. And we've got some Canadian content uh, in this as well. We've got Corey Connors. He's 27th ranked right now. Mackenzie Hughes is 67th and Adam Hadwin's one 112. So right now, if it was to start today, three Canadians would be in the chase, at least, for the FedEx Cup. And you know what comes with the FedEx Cup? I believe it's $15 million. A lot of money. A lot of money. $15 million. Yeah. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad payday. I know a lot of our listeners are going to probably say the CFL or NFL, and probably more the NFL, just because it's the NFL and it's yeah. it's kind of king when it comes to uh, sporting events in the world. But I, <laughs> CFL, for me, I am interested because of the fact that, like, if – Calgary plays, well, Calgary does play BC tomorrow night, Jamie. And if one of those teams goes 0-2, there's going to be an interesting conversation around one of those two teams because 0-2 means you don't want to go 0-3. Yes. You've got a 14-game season, and you don't want to be last in the division, and you don't want to be fighting for a playoff spot down the stretch. So there is some intrigue, at least early on in this season, and we don't know who's going to start a quarterback for the BC Lions. But, you know, it, I could probably talk you into why I'd be interested in all, all of these sports. Yeah, and I will say, just going back to when you were touching on tennis, you know, this time of year in the tennis calendar, I really like tennis, but I wouldn't say I'm locked in on every event between the majors, you know, week in, week out. But mm-hmm. this this time of the calendar, right, with the, you know, the formerly the Rogers Cup, now the National Bank Open, we get wall-to-wall coverage of that. So it's yes. easy to get into leading into the U.S. Open is probably the time of year where I watch the most tennis. So I'm excited for that. That's always a a fun time in August. And then, you know, we've got a few people texting in here. Uh, Dave in Cedar says, this is easy. The National League West, go Giants. So our second San Francisco Giants fan texting in. I know. I didn't know. I didn't know Vancouver was such a hotbed for Giants fans. Uh, And the BC Lions, he texts in as well. And then Aaron in Calgary says, I'm a big Jays fan. And the CFL is back. So that will keep me entertained until hockey starts up again, plus a little NFL once that gets going. I will say I understand it's the NFL, and we feel like we have to consume every single thing they put out and watch every game <laughs> they play. But, man, yeah. a- NFL exhibition is tough. It's a tough, tough go. So if I'm if I'm looking for some pigskin over the next couple of weeks, I- yeah. I'll probably be tuning into the CFL over the NFL preseason. The news came out yesterday that Jordan Love was going to start at quarterback for the Green Bay Packers in their first preseason game, and Aaron Rodgers unlikely to play in the preseason. I'm like, and yeah? Like, this yeah, is a no story? Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Like, no kidding, the starting quarterback is not going to play any preseason games, and if he does, maybe play a quarter. Maybe it was more surprising to me that Bruce Arians came out and said that Tom Brady's actually going to play in week one of the preseason. I'm thinking, what are you doing throwing Tom Brady out there in preseason action? I guess he just wanted to get some reps in, but to me, the more the more I was like surprising story was that okay Brady's gonna play like this makes no sense yeah that's a surprising one I don't know I mean again 
I guess he just doesn't follow the normal rules of, of aging and physical health. You would think you want to rest your veteran quarterback as much as possible in the preseason, but it's Tom Brady. Uh, so who knows? Some more text coming in, 960-960. Get your comments in. What's going to tide you over? Which sports are going to tide you over until hockey is back? Steve says, my sports are the fights, whether it be UFC, PFC, or mm-hmm. Bellator, and, of course, my Rough Riders. So there you go, Karen. You're a, a UFC aficionado as well, <laughs> I believe. Is that going to uh, – is that going to be part of your viewing schedule until hockey is back? No. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> It's pretty simple. Uh, there's just other sports going on. I was really into when it first happened. and You know, you put some money on some fights, and that keeps you entertained. And I got a bunch of the, uh, like, paid for the pay-per-views leading up to it. And I got the, Con- the Conor McGregor one because it's Conor McGregor, and it's a show, and I wanted to watch him play or fight. But honestly, like, I, I didn't care what was going on in the last pay-per-view UFC fight. Didn't really pay attention. Didn't put any money down. There's just other things to keep my attention right now. So UFC has definitely gone by the wayside. Um, hey, Greg, are you there? What is what's keeping your attention? Obviously, the Blue Jays. Anything else that you've been are going to keep your eye on until we we get goalies back on the ice? <laughs> well, yeah, it's pretty boring. I'm I'm with Jamie there with watching the Jays through this uh, pennant chase. They're looking pretty exciting. So I'm going to be watching that. And yeah, just baseball, baseball until uh, until hockey season's back for me. When does the Korean baseball league start up? Oh, it's still it going. Right they they just oh. finished their <laughs> they just finished their little break for the Olympics. Uh, they let their players go okay. and, and and participate at the Olympics. So now they're back and yeah, we're we're we got two pennant chases to keep an eye on the Korean okay. baseball league and the major league baseball pennant chase. Sounds good. I will rely on you to give us updates on the Korean I will. baseball league. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Greg, let's get to what they're saying. ESPN's Greg Wyshynski had to say a lot on 650 Morning Show, Halford and Bruff, this morning. But specifically, he's been following the Olympic beat in terms of will the will they or won't they NHL players go to the Beijing Games. He was asked about the fact that will NHL players reconsider going to the Olympics with the reported restrictions that are will be in place. Right, uh, but they'll totally go. Okay, <laughs> I mean, okay. The whole, the whole thing is, about playing for your country in the Olympics with the potential to win an Olympic medal. That's what it's always been uh, for these guys. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm saying this from a sense built over the years of, of what they're thinking. I haven't spoken recently to any of the potential Olympians about these restrictions. But you got to remember, like, and, and, you know, I did a ton of reporting around the bubble, too, like, the bubble restrictions were something that they lived with knowing that it could be two weeks, knowing it could be two and a half months. Like it was open-ended and it sucked. I mean, they were away from their families, the whole thing. The Olympics is a very open and closed schedule. They know when they're heading in, they know when they're leaving, they know what they have to put up with for those days and then they're gone. And in the meantime, you get to do something that only occurs once every four years that you collectively bargain to have the right to do again for the next two Olympics. So if they go, which is a separate question, I don't, I think the players would be, would be willing to go. I think they'd be willing to do it, even though it's not going to feel like a traditional Olympics. And even though they're going to have to be in, in even more of a stringent uh, restrictive bubble than they were in the playoffs. No, oh, okay. Um, that's the next clip we're going to get to. Uh, I asked. I'm going to blame that on Dom, uh, the morning show producer, Jamie. Always a safe bet. Always a safe cut, bet. I asked him to cut these clips. Maybe I should take the L on that one because I didn't listen to them. So <laughs> I should have seen. I just assumed they'd be cut correctly. That's going to be on Dom ne- on that one. Never assume like that with Dom. 
Yeah, we know what assume means, right? Um, here's the thing. Well, here, I'll get your opinion on this. Like, I think that wearing your crest on your chest and understanding that it's only going to be for two and a half weeks, you put yourself through the... You put yourself through the restrictions, you put yourself through the tighter bubble because you never know when or if you're going to play for your country again in the Olympic format with the NHL. I just think we have seen consistently how much the players value the Olympics, right? They value the opportunity to represent their countries at the Olympics. And again, it's it's two weeks. I understand how much exhaustion there was with the idea of a bubble after going through the playoff bubbles in Toronto and Edmonton. I, I fully appreciate that, appreciate that, how hard it was for them. But at the end of the day, it's two weeks of hardship for something that these players have fought for time and time again, right? The chance to go to the Olympics. So I, I mean, unless we are talking about absolutely over the top draconian restrictions, which I don't think we are going to be, I can't see this derailing NHL players going. Who knows? Maybe there's one or two who says, you know what? I don't want to go through that again for whatever reason, for whatever specific circumstances they're dealing with. But by and large, players are going to say, look, it's not ideal. I would prefer a traditional Olympic experience. But if this is what I have to do to put on the sweater for my country to go compete for a gold medal, hey, I'll put up with it for two weeks. And Wyshynski also talked about the fact, um, or what is apparently the current holdup, because we still don't have a decision on whether or not players are going to the Olympics. I wrote a story talking to a bunch of teams and a a bunch of uh, season ticket holders to kind of get a sense of what it's like on the ground right now with this uncertainty. And and so basically teams are going ahead selling the current schedule with the Olympic break built into it. Uh, They're going ahead and scheduling travel with the Olympic break built into it. As a lot of people know, if they don't go to Beijing, they flip to uh, Schedule B, basically. They go to a revised schedule that does whatever it can to kind of keep the dates in the same spots they're in now. But uh, a lot of teams told me that there's upwards of 16 home games they're going to have to move for for them. Um, One team told me they had eight games in October and six of them are going to have to move (laughs) the new dates. So it's a pretty dramatic change throughout the entire calendar um, if the NHL switches to this other schedule. And, you know, it's going to be a hassle for teams to reschedule travel. There's a lot of teams that have tried to build in contingency clauses into their contracts with hotels to say, hey, if this doesn't happen, we're going to have to you know, figure out something else and not be liable for this deposit. Uh, they've been unable to release schedules of promotional nights. I mean, think about how many people schedule their you know ticket buying around bringing their family to bobblehead night you know or something like that well that's that's been impossible because they don't even know when those nights are quite yet so it's a really interesting story i hope people check it out and the bottom line is that the teams i spoke to that there's at least two of them that are telling their season ticket holders that this thing should be resolved uh one way or the other by the end of the month and uh, bill daly the deputy commissioner confirmed that to me that uh, by the end of august we're going to figure out which schedule we're playing Okay, so again, that's not the clip I wanted either, but that's totally fine. Uh, we can discuss this, Jamie, going on. 
And I'm going to have to proof clips moving forward. Uh, the one thing to take away, I guess, from that clip is the final statement that Wyshynski says when he spoke to Bill Daly. They're going to have an answer by the end of August. Yeah. And they're going to need one because training camps start in a few weeks following that. I guess basically the holdup is right now a couple of things. It's possibly insurance still just dealing with the... They have an insurance provider for COVID, but it's still the payment of it all. Also, the stupid thing that the IOC has with the fact that I, once again going forward the NHL is not going to have any rights to its highlights right and that it seems like such a stupid small thing and I get probably from the IOC's standpoint is they say look if we bend the rules for you then we have to bend our policy for everyone and it's gonna it's gonna create all these problems but I mean can't they just let people share highlights like it's the social media age why what's the harm I don't understand the fanaticism they approach this issue with it seems like it should be such a simple thing to, to figure out it does. And if you want to grow the game, I guess it's not the IOC's worry. If you want to grow the game, it's the NHL's worry if you want to grow the game. But it does seem so trivial that this is something that we are fighting on. One last clip I want to get to you because Russell Westbrook was introduced as the new Los Angeles Laker. He spoke for the first time since that trade went down. And he was asked about the fact how his game will fit with LeBron James's game. As you know, LeBron is one of the best players to play this game. Um, and his, his ability to be able to kind of do everything on the floor um, allows me to be able to just figure it out. Um, I'm coming to a championship-caliber team, and my job is to make sure that I'm able to make his game easy for him, um, and I'll find ways to do that throughout the game. Um, as it pertains to ball handling and all that, it really doesn't matter. Um, there's many different ways you can impact the game without having the ball in your hands. Um, and I'm, I've been able to do that for many years, and um, I will figure it out. He's got to figure it out, Jamie, because Russell Westbrook, uh, you got to think this is – I know he's extremely talented, but this is one of his last chances. He's been traded three times in three years. And Kevin Durant didn't want to play with him, so he got out. James Harden didn't want to play yep. with him, so he got out. Then Russell Westbrook gets traded. Well, actually, I think Westbrook was traded before yes. James Harden. But there was they couldn't work together uh, in that one year. They did play together. It was not a peaceful uh, partnership. Then we know what happened with Washington. And yeah, towards the end of the year, they made a run. Who cares? It's Washington, basically. Uh, but Russell Westbrook is now playing with LeBron James. And you're going to have to play the LeBron James way. Yeah, and the thing that concerns me is both of those superstars you mentioned that it hasn't worked out with, Kevin Durant and James Harden, I mean, those are both guys who thrive with the ball in their hands, right? And that's mm -hmm. Russell Westbrook as well. And the difference with Westbrook, Westbrook is, you know, he can't really play off the ball that effectively nope. because he's not a great spot-up shooter. Now, there are things you can do to kind of mask that a little bit, right? Like if you're sneaking in for offensive rebounds, you're making some backdoor cuts for dunks and all that. But it's tricky. It's not a clean fit. And... Look, everywhere LeBron James goes and every stop of his career, he is the primary ball handler for his team. He, mm -hmm. he runs the offense. He is the guy dictating the flow of the game out there. And it's worked incredibly well for him. So that's how it should be. So it's going to be a major challenge for Russell Westbrook. And he'll get his shots, right? When you know, We know LeBron at his age, he, he's not going 100% every game in the regular season. So he'll take some possessions off where he goes and stands in the corner and you know Westbrook can do his thing. That will happen. But in crunch time, which is obviously all that matters for the Lakers in crunch time in big games, it's going to be LeBron James with the ball in his hand. And Russell Westbrook is going to figure out, going to have to figure out a way to punish teams that leave him undefended on the perimeter. Because right now teams are just going to ignore him out there and they're going to throw double mm -hmm. teams at LeBron and Anthony Davis. And if Westbrook can't make them pay, it's not going to work out.
Yeah, the best thing for a defense is having Russell Westbrook probably take an open three because that yes. means it's not LeBron James taking it. Yeah. It means it's not AD in the paint taking it or even taking a three because AD is a better three-point shooter than um, Russell Westbrook is. We do know the fact that two of the last three years, LeBron James' season has been derailed by injuries and ankle injuries. So if there is an injury situation, you would mention the fact that he's not going to go full bore because of his age. Well, he could be injured as well. We've seen now they're starting to creep into his career. So if the Lakers still want to make a push, He's a second kind of alternative if LeBron James is out. But I still do have very massive questions why they made this trade and why they got Russell Westbrook to fit in with LeBron James. But we'll see how it does going forward. We're going to switch now and talk a little hockey around the corner. Ian Mendez with The Athletic is going to join us. We'll discuss the comments made by Elias Patterson earlier today, or at least yesterday, in Sweden to a Swedish reporter. We'll discuss that and some other storylines with the NHL. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Jimmy Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. This is Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. We're going to be joined momentarily by the Athletics' Ian Mendes. But I want to give an update, Jamie, to our listeners because Rebecca Marino is off to the third round at Let's the National go. Bank Open. Yes, she won in three sets. Pretty incredible. She lost that first set 6-1, was able to rebound 7-5, 6-4, do you know, okay, she was in a tournament she won a couple of weeks ago back in mid-July. It was an ITF tour. So basically the, the tour under the WTA. Yep. Uh, we call it the Challenger Tour back in the day. The prize money for the total event was $25,000. She won $3,900 for winning that tournament. Wow. She was in a mid to the second round of a tournament a couple of weeks ago. She won $2,400. She lost in the first round of her next tournament, won $1,000. This is, I'm not saying this is life-changing for her, but we do know how if you are really good in tennis, you can make a ton of money. But Rebecca Moreno is ranked 220th in the world, so she has to go to these smaller events just to win basically any money that she can to keep her tennis career alive. If she had lost in the first round, just to get into this tournament, she would have made $10,000. So you can only imagine how much it's gone up now that she's in the third round. I don't want to say around 30000 but the quarterfinalists make $41,000, win or lose. Yeah. So for her, someone who's made just over a hundred... She's made, I believe... $135,000 this year, which is pretty which is pretty good chunk of change for for the most of us, but for someone who has to tour the world and has to pay your own coach, you have to pay yep. your own physiotherapist, you got to pay all these different things out of your pocket. A sizable chunk of change of like $30,000 is huge for her. So not only is it just great news that she's playing this well on tournament again, but for financially for her this is a big boost. Yeah, it's it's massive for her and for her career, really to keep it back on the track that it has yeah. been recently. It's it's so great to see. Absolutely. Uh, we're joined now from uh, with Ian Mendez from our nation's capital, of course, with The Athletic. Ian, long time no speak. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. I, I Listen, I was promised Rintoul. What happened here? No. Scotty's nah, in, in week... <laughs> I apologize, <laughs> well, Ian. Yeah, I will no, say Jamie, we... It's all good. <laughs> we all need Scotty's agent because he's in week three of three weeks straight vacation. So, and apparently he's coming back for a week and then taking another week vacation. So I don't know what he's done, but I need to ne- negotiate that one. Yeah, I didn't realize radio hosts could take three straight weeks uh, off in a row in they- the summertime. Apparently, when there's no hockey to talk about, it's an okay thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ian, 
some news came out today. I'm sure you saw it on Twitter. Uffe Bodin, a uh, Swedish reporter covering the NHL, spoke with Elias Pettersson in Swedish, and he translated some of the comments to English. And obviously, you can imagine some of the comments caused a little bit of stir, at least in the Vancouver market. And Jamie and I prefaced this when we talked about it early, saying, like, okay, let's just, it's Vancouver, so you're going to overreact, but don't overreact. By what you're hearing from Elias Patterson basically said they're not really close on a deal right now, but he hopes to get something done. It kind of leads him to believe that it's going to be a bridge deal and he wants to win and he wants to win consistency. And he thinks the team on the ice right now has a chance to make the playoffs next year, but he's also going to see where they're at when he has to sign his next contract when it comes to committing with Vancouver. Can you talk listeners down from the edge a little bit? Like this is, this is okay to hear these things that this guy wants to win a Stanley cup. Yeah, and I think the you know of of the and I saw the translated uh, comments. I think the one word that has sort of everybody kind of a little panicked is the word now, right? Where he says, "Hey, listen, I want to be there now," and mm-hmm. but it leaves it open, right? Like, does he want to be there in the future? He's like, "No, nah, I want to be there now," but I also want to know that at the next end of this contract, that I'm going to be on a, on a winning team, and that's it's okay. And li- listen, like we're we're in in this market, kind of going through something similar. With, uh, with Brady Kachuk, and I think uh, we're seeing this more and more. Obviously, in Vancouver, there's Hughes and, and Pedersen, and in Ottawa, there's Kachuk, but you're seeing this more and more, right, where the guys coming off entry-level deals, this becomes a sticky situation. I think you, you think to yourself, do you want the – I think a lot of fans want the seven-, eight-year deal. I think a lot of players are starting to, to start to bet on themselves a little bit and say, you know, I don't have to take eight years right away. It might be better if I take three years or four years and then – then I got a little bit more leverage when we get closer to unrestricted free agency, uh, you know, when I turn 27. So, listen, I, I think what's really important, and, and like I said, we've been through this a little bit with, with the Kachuk situation in Ottawa, and I think there's some comparables with, with Pedersen in Vancouver, is, is that a lot of times, I don't want to say these are negotiation tactics or ploys, but really, at the end of the day, I don't think, uh, Patterson's going to be offer sheeted. I know that that that's the boogeyman. So he's going to come back and he's going to play. And at the very least, he's going to play for your team for the next three years, right? Like I, I don't. It's very hard to imagine a scenario where a guy like uh, Elias Patterson or, or Quinn Hughes or Brady Kachuk that they come back and they just sign like a one year deal and let's all do this all over again next year, right? Like at the very least, you're going to have this guy for three years. So I, I think that's the that's the main point. I think sometimes as, as fans and media. We get panicked, and, we, and certainly it's the middle of August, and your star RFA has just done a, an interview overseas where when you do the translation, yeah, it seems a little bit salacious. It seems a little bit like he's drawing a line in the sand. But at the end of the day, understand on opening night in the middle of October, um, there's a 99.9% chance Elias Pettersson's playing for the Vancouver Canucks, right? And that, that's the important thing. Now, do you get him for five years or six years? I guess we'll see, but I think at the very least – you get him for three years, and, and then you worry about the next contract uh, down the road. Ian and Jim and I were talking about this as well. Like This is not, one, a surprise to Jim Benning either. Like Look at the changes that they made on this roster in this offseason. Jim Benning, the busiest uh, general manager in Canada, making a ton of moves, revamping the blue line, upgrading the top six. Like He understands this is not just Elias Pettersson, but there's also a ton of other players on this team, young players that have the potential to leave in a couple of years if they don't sign extensions. Like He needs to put some sort of winning product on the ice, or at least prove to these players that he's committed to putting a winning product on the ice. Yeah, and I think that's where the, the modern hockey 
player, it's probably changed a little bit, right? Where like back in the day, like with, like you think of a guy like like Stan Smeal who played his whole career, you know, in Vancouver. Like at any point that Stan Smeal be like, you better you better show me that you can win or I'm out the door. Like no, like that was your team and that was pretty much it. For life, right? Like Marcel Dion, I'll tell you that. He, you know, stayed in L.A. for a long time. And, um, you know, there's lots of guys over the years that were were very good hockey players. Um, you know, I think of a Gilbert Perot. Like, like he, he never said, like, five years into his career, like, if I'm not, uh, you know, on a competitive team, I'm out the door. And it was just kind of the way it is. And I think the modern athlete now wants to show the commitment. And then the irony then becomes, you look at a team like Toronto – where that's exactly what they did, right? Like they, they wanted to show uh, their core that they were committed, so they went in on John Tavares, and they made sure that they gave Austin Matthews his money, and they gave Mitchell Marner his money. And they, everyone got their money, and now it's like, uh-oh, do we have enough money to, to spend on uh, you know, so, some of the other spots that we need, the bottom six forwards and goaltending and defense? And so it's a slippery slope. You have to figure out how you can simultaneously – show these young players that, yeah, listen, we want to win. We're building towards something. But you also don't want to necessarily overpay them before they've, uh, you know, proven anything. Even Edmonton, remember uh, whatever year that was, when they went in and they signed Taylor Hall, Jordan Eberle, uh, you know, they signed all these guys, R&H. They gave them the big contracts before they had done anything. And then it was like, you know, whatever, three years later, it was like, uh-oh, like, wh- what have we done here, right? So it's a, it's a tricky thing. Now, I'll say one thing for, for Jim Benning. You, you guys and girls in Vancouver, boy, you're, at least you get entertaining, interesting off-seasons. It feels like <laughs> every year it's a gift for, for talk radio, I'm sure, at 650, because you guys that are there on the air, like, man, there's just never a shortage of things to talk about with the, with the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, I will say it's definitely nice when you're hosting a radio show that starts at 9 and about 8.30, some Elias, some spicy <laughs> Elias Pettersson comments drop. Yeah. That never hurts for sure, Ian. I, I think you're absolutely right talking about the shift we've seen in hockey specifically of you know guys from years past who would play their whole careers and never really think about trying to maneuver somewhere else versus what we see now. I mean, this is a big question, but what do you think is at the root of that change? Because, you know, I compare it to, let's say, the situation in the NBA and go all the way back to when LeBron James left Cleveland for Miami and people ripped him apart. But I think at the root of that decision was he knew he needed to win championships or else people would criticize him forever for not winning championships. And do you think there's a similar dynamic in hockey now where players understand that if they don't win, there's going to be a ton of criticism. So they're more mindful of trying to go to the best situation to win. Yeah, it's, isn't it fascinating? Like, I always think to myself, like, I look at the NBA model, and I love it. Like, I do. I do love the, the uh, movement of superstars, the, the kind of the, the off-season storylines. And I think to myself, like, can you imagine if every two or three years Connor McDavid's contract was up or Nate McKinnon's contract was up or, you know, Sid's contract was up, and you're like, where are they going to go? And they're going to, you know, like – in the NBA, I, I do think players tend to bet on themselves a little bit more, right? Like, they're, they're much more willing to, listen, I'm going to take a two-year, I'll take a two-year deal and then, or get the out clause or the option to, to, to move on after two years or three years. Like, that to me is betting on yourself a lot more than we see. Like, in hockey, you don't see that, though, I find, right? Like, Marion Hosa is one guy that I think of, like, Marion Hosa bet on himself. Uh, he did a one-year deal, I think, in Detroit in, in 2009, and I don't want to say it backfired because his team went to the Stanley Cup, but they lost. Uh, and then he was like, okay, well, now I need to go to Chicago and I need to surround myself with some good young talent and I'll, I'll take a little less money and I'll get the long-term deal. Like, 
those are the deals that I think are great. Like if you can get the Marion Hosa type of guys, or like obviously you can't do those backloaded deals anymore. But those are the ones that that really work. Like I even look at Colorado, and I do think like like boy oh boy, Nate McKinnon's contract might be the best one in in all of pro sports for for what he's bringing to the table. Like a Hart Trophy candidate every year, and he's just making you know kind of in between six and seven million and. Yet the Avalanche still haven't been able to win with Nate McKinnon on essentially a bargain basement deal for a player of his caliber. Now you get Kale McCarr at again. It's going to sound silly to say it's a it's a team friendly deal at nine million, but you see some other defensemen out there that are making more, and you're like, I'll take Kale McCarr over all those guys at, at nine million. So it's a really tricky thing to navigate because I don't know. Like Tampa Bay obviously uh, had a whole bunch of factors in their favor where they're able to keep a bunch of young players. And, and core people in at the prime of their career all under one roof. It is so hard to do in the National Hockey League that uh, I think, and they're going through it in Toronto with, with Marner and Matthews, where like the, the heat really does get turned on you in a hurry if you don't start winning and producing on those, those big-ticket contracts. So I think I always think that players, they just want to go to a place where, A, they're going to be fairly compensated, but, B, they know, okay, I got a window here. I got five years in which I can compete for a championship. And I think just to go back to Elias Pettersson's comment today that he made overseas, I think that's what he's saying. He's not saying, like, I want it this, like, this year we better be a playoff team. I think it's more like I just need to know, like, 24 months from now, 36 months from now, are we a Stanley Cup contender or are we stuck in this, hey, we're a playoff bubble team and kind of where they've been uh, in, in the last four or five years? Uh, Ian, we also wanted to pick your brain a little bit looking at the offseason for the seven Canadian teams. Is there one of the Canadian teams that stands out to you and you say, man, they had a really, really good summer this year? You know what? I, I, I will say, I, I do think, and I don't know how it's played out in your market, I do think the Vancouver Canucks have had a pretty good offseason. I think they've, un, like, I, listen, Oliver Ekman Larson, is it going to be a, a big uh, pill to swallow? Yeah, it is. But they also got rid of some, some other contracts. And I, I really like Connor Garland. I think he's a really. Um, I think you're just going to love watching this guy play, and I, he probably gets buried in Arizona that maybe the average hockey fan doesn't realize how productive he can be. So I don't actually mind what the Vancouver Canucks have done. I, I actually think, given that weak Pacific division, where I only think Vegas is the only team that I would lock it in as a 100% playoff team, everyone else has some question marks, I don't, I don't hate what, uh, what the Vancouver Canucks have done. I like what Winnipeg has done. I think Winnipeg has really bolstered um, their back end, I think uh, that was a team that I think a lot of us looked at the Jets and thought, boy, why didn't they do this at the trade deadline last year? Like that, that was the one thing that they were screaming for, right? Like, can, can, you, can you add a defenseman or two? And they didn't, and uh, they, I think they kind of paid the price for it. So I kind of like what those two teams have done. And, and I mean, Edmonton certainly, they went out and they made some really aggressive and splashy moves and uh, obviously getting a guy like Duncan Keith was a polarizing move, but um, they've, they've certainly looked at the back end, whether or not uh, those guys like Cody Cece as well, uh, whether they actually uh, play up to their, their salaries and the expectations is going to be interesting to see, but I'll give them credit for at least not standing pat, which is what I think a couple of the other teams have done. Yeah, and let's talk about one of those other teams. Uh, we're joined by Ian Mendez with The Athletic. Talk about the Calgary Flames, because if I had said to you a month ago, before free agency, if I had said, look ahead, Johnny Goudreau, Elias Lindholm, Matthew Kachuk, Backlund, Monaghan, they're still all Calgary Flames. You would have said... I would have said there's no way. There's no way that 
they're all going to be back, right? Like, didn't it feel like, and, and I don't, I hate to use the word stale because these guys are still all in their 20s. It's not like they've you know, been together for 10 or 12 years. It kind of feels like the core is stale, though, doesn't it? A little bit in Calgary, like that they've tried it with Johnny and Monty and they've tried it, and it just doesn't quite seem to click. But yet, they're all really good players. Like, I, There's not a guy that I look at there. Uh, I know Monaghan's had some injury issues, but there's not anybody that I look there and I, and I think like they're not legitimate top six forwards out of all the players you mentioned there. So I, I am surprised, though. I really, truly am surprised because I think uh, the feeling was one of Goudreau and Monaghan would, would probably get moved and they would do something. Now, they are the one team in Canada that I do think when you hear the Jack Eichel stuff, I keep thinking like it makes a ton of sense. Like they, they mm-hmm. do need that legitimate top of the lineup, number one centerman. Um, you know, they would, I think in theory, they have some of the pieces, maybe not some of the young dazzling pieces that the, uh, the, the Rangers, the Kings, or some other teams have, but they do have some pieces. Like, I guess I'll reserve judgment a little bit, but uh, and I didn't mind the Blake. Blake Coleman is a really nice addition. Like, I think he, he certainly um, he proved his worth in, 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 in Tampa, but I, I, don't, I, I didn't look at Calgary and say that team's just a Blake Coleman away from being a Stanley Cup contender. I think maybe adding Blake Coleman makes them a playoff contender or puts them into that kind of mushy middle in, in that Pacific division. But uh, again, I just, I don't know uh, what they're going to do, but it just feels like they're, we still got five or six weeks till training camp. It still kind of mm-hmm. feels like a couple of teams might, might make some moves. Ian, taking a look at the team in your market, the Ottawa Senators, we always called them the pl- the plucky Sens last year in the North Division. They were kind of a feel-good story when you watched them play on the ice, but it's back to the normal divisions this year. Do you see them being a possible pushing a little bit for a playoff spot, or is it still like we're one year away from that happening? Well, and, and you, you pointed it out, Karen. Like the, the biggest issue that they have, I think that they're going to face, is that they've gone back to the old divisional format. Because I do think if they had one more year of the all-Canadian division, I think fans kind of got a taste of it in the last six weeks of the season, they were trending in the right direction. And maybe even if that was an 82-game season last year, maybe there was enough track for them to to uh, to catch the, the rest of the field there and maybe push into the fourth playoff spot. But now you're going back to the old division. And so you got the two-time defending Stanley Cup champ, uh, champion Tampa Lightning. I think it's safe to say they're a playoff block. The Toronto Maple Leafs, at the very least, uh, you know, I know there's all the jokes about them, and uh, I saw it all with the Amazon Prime, uh, you know, all or nothing <laughs> video coming out today. Sometimes the, the Maple Leafs, I understand it, why they're low-hanging fruit, but they are a very good regular season team. So I think they're a playoff team. The Florida Panthers really sort of elevated their game last year. And I think they've made themselves a little bit better in the off season with a couple of moves. So there's three teams that you look at and you're like, man, they're probably playoff teams. Right. And that's to say nothing of the Boston Bruins who have been a perennial playoff team for the past decade. Uh, maybe they take a step back without Krejci and without Tuka Rask and some of those pieces, but uh, I don't know how you just, you know, just count them out. And Montreal went to the Stanley cup final. And so I don't know how you just, count them out so those are five teams that people might say are ahead of ottawa and then you look at the other division and that's a pretty strong one so can you sneak into a wild card it it might be tough but i do think at the very least they've taken themselves out of that conversation where like last year at this time they were hanging with buffalo and they were hanging with detroit and i I think they've moved out of that conversation i think columbus to be honest with you has probably flipped with ottawa where columbus was the kind of bubble team that maybe if everything went well they could make the playoffs but i think columbus has become a team that could legitimately finish 30th or 31st or 32nd in the standings and ottawa could be the team that maybe finishes somewhere between 20th and and 15th uh, overall 
you know, Ian, just before we let you go, I want to just touch on something you mentioned a little while ago, looking at the Kale McCarr contract in Colorado and saying, you know, despite the big number, it almost seems like a bargain when you see what some other defensemen are getting around the NHL. And, you know, to me, that was really, I think, the league-wide story of this offseason was seeing some of the eye-popping numbers that different defensemen got. And it's curious because I think there's a disconnect between maybe how a lot of fans value defensemen and how maybe we in the media value versus what the general managers seem to be willing to pay for defensemen. What is it that people like me, people like, you know, casual fans are missing? Why, why are we always surprised when we see how much money these defensemen get in the open market? It's, you know what, Jamie, that is such a good question. Such a good question because it's, this was the summer of the defensemen, right? Where like, uh, you, you know, pick a defenseman, Seth Jones in nine and a half, and Dougie Hamilton nine, and, uh, you know, Darnell Nurse gets his big payday, and, you know, Pellick uh, gets a eight-year deal, and, like, you're like, well, what is going on here? Like, where, where are these guys getting Cody CCA even, um, you know, to, to give him the term that he got, I think, raise some eyebrows. It is fascinating, right? Like, and I wonder if a little bit was, you know, last year I think we saw a real – uh, it was almost like the, the the strings were really tight around wallets in the National Hockey League, and you didn't see very many three, four, five year contracts being handed out in free agency or otherwise. Like I even look at Matt Barzell last year, and there's a guy that you know probably could have had a huge payday in a non-pandemic world, and he's like, you know what, three years, twenty-one million seems satisfactory to me, and I'll do that. And and then this summer it's like what is going on and i it's such a good question you ask because i i think that a lot of us look at defensemen and i don't know maybe like again i i guess in my mind i'm like how is a guy like kale mccarr making less money than seth jones like i don't get it i don't i don't know and and i think what's really interesting is remember like whenever it was four or five years four years ago whenever eric carlson and drew dowdy signed their mega deals and it was like for $11.5 million per, and we were like, this is the gold standard for defensemen moving forward. The, the, the best defensemen in the league are now going to make $11.5 million and probably not a penny less. Well, now, three, four years later, those guys are, I think, on a list of a lot of people are like, man, are they overpaid? And the best guys in the league are making $8, 9000000 million. And it's, I don't know. It's, it, it is really, truly uh, a head-scratching question and it's actually a really good question because i don't know the answer to why like i think we get more surprised on defenseman contracts than any other contract in the sport right like i i just think of this summer and i there's at least five times where i had to double check my phone to make sure that the numbers were right and the term was right because it it just didn't seem to line up with what i had in my head yeah, you could point to Darnell Nurse being one of those contracts, probably, yeah. in, in what lined up uh, w- with what he got. Hey, uh, just uh, quickly, what do you have at the Athletics uh, working on for the Athletic and the Hockey Show, the podcast as well? What do you have uh, going on there? Yeah, listen, it's been a lot of fun. I, I, as the two of you know, when you're doing doing shows in the summertime, sometimes it can, um, you know, it can get a little bit dry, right? So, you know, with our podcast, we're trying to do some fun things like – uh, myself and, and Sean McIndoe, who I think most people on, on social media know him better as Down Goes Brown. Uh, the two of us have a, a, a weekly podcast, and I think we're going to try and do some fun things. Like uh, One of the things we're doing, I think we're going to do it for, for our episode uh, this week, uh, will be, can we come up with a list of the 10 most likable players in hockey history? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's what we're going to do. And, you know, it's funny, right? Because I think it, you'd have no problem coming up with the 10 most hated players in hockey history, right? Like, you could probably pick 10 guys <laughs> in the league right now that like, 
Brad Marchand, Tom Wilson. But can you find 10 players that, like, most fans are like, ah, you know what, I like that guy. Like, so, like, the Timu Solani. Like, nobody hates yeah. Timu Solani, do they? Like, I don't think so. So I think we're going to have some fun with that and see if we can come up with 10 guys who've played in the game that everyone can agree. They're like, ah, you know what, I like that guy because it's hard to do. Awesome. We'll look forward to that, Ian. Uh, thanks for taking some time out of your summer to uh, join us today. Always appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the rest of the summer. About five-week countdown till training camp. <laughs> yeah, listen, thanks for having me. And boy, the show sounded way better with Jamie in for Rintoul. <laughs> I'm going to clip that. I'm sending that yeah. to management as we speak, Ian. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ian. Have a great day. That right, is Ian Mendez. That's Ian Mendez with The Athletic. Uh, we're up against the break. Jamie, we'll unpack some of that on the other side. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul.